This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to the August 12, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend saw a lot of racing across the continent, and is so often the case, environmental conditions played a big role in how things played out in a couple of different venues. Locally, at the 70.3 race in Boulder, we saw typical conditions of dry air, sunshine, and pretty still winds give way to a really hot afternoon temperatures on the run. The Boulder course is known for a few things, a scenic and fast bike course, amazing volunteers, and a really difficult run course if it's hot, as it was on this year's race day. There's literally no shade whatsoever on the course, and the running surface of dirt roads and gravel reflects the heat in a way that makes you feel as though you're being cooked from all around, as well as generating your own heat from within. Run times were slow across the board, including for the pros, and there's no doubt that the temperature was to blame for that. Meanwhile, a lot further north than here in Juneau, Alaska, the first ever Ironman Alaska was to take place the very next day in strikingly different conditions. An atmospheric river was flowing eastward most of the week leading up to that event, and as a result, conditions were cold and damp, and the water temperature in the lake where the swim was to be held was a frigid 55 or 56 degrees in the days before. On race day, it was determined that the water temperatures were simply too cold to allow for a 2.4-mile swim safely, and so it was reduced to a one-lap 1.2-mile swim instead. The rest of the day was only moderately better for most, as there were still chilly temperatures and sporadic rain throughout the day. All of this is to say that these kinds of stories and climate impacts on our sport are very likely to become the norm, and not the outlier in years to come, and we're just going to have to prepare for it. Performing well in these events is going to become as much about adaptability and tolerance to different kinds of conditions on the ground as it is about strength and endurance training. Still, I, like many others, found myself a little mystified about the recent race announcement coming from the folks at Ironman. They announced a new event on the 70.3 circuit to be held in Morro Bay, California in May of next year. Now, at first glance, this looks to be a pretty cool event with its location near Solvang, a fantastic location for cycling and a pretty town to stage a run in. The issue that many had, including myself, was that the average water temperature for that time of year, as listed on the Ironman website, is 51 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, for reference, Ironman swim safety rules state that when the water temperature is below 52 degrees Fahrenheit, the swim can't be held. So you can imagine the raised eyebrows and commentary from the masses on Facebook when they had a look at the race announcement, immediately saw the likely water temperatures, and gave a collective thanks but no thanks. At least that was kind of the gist of what I was seeing. Well, in the coming weeks, I'm going to explore both of these topics a little bit more. 
First, with respect to the impacts of how climate change is impacting our races and our ability to perform at them, me and my interns are currently working on a story reviewing what is known about how air quality can hinder athletic performance in triathlons. And we know that air quality is is being impacted by climate change, first by increasing the amount of wildfires that we're seeing and how smoke is a continuous and often a prevalent threat at races that are very far removed from where fires are, and also because air pollution itself is one of the main contributors to climate change in the first place. Second, with respect to how and why Ironman selects locations for future events, I'm going to have a guest on an upcoming event or an upcoming program who is going to be a senior regional director for Ironman a man who is very involved in making these decisions. So we're going to get a peek behind the curtain and hopefully have a better understanding as to how they're made. That's all going to be coming up in shows to come in the next few weeks. But for today, on the first segment, I'm going to revisit a subject that I have spoken about a couple of times on the podcast, and that is sudden cardiac death in endurance sport. This past weekend at the Boulder event, there was unfortunately another incident with a a swimmer suffering a cardiac event during the swim, having to be pulled from the water unconscious and sent to hospital. I know that the person was in the ICU last I heard, but I unfortunately don't know any additional details. Now, of course, this is every triathlete's and every family member of a triathlete's worst nightmare, and I've spoken before about what the causes of these incidents might be and how they might be detected in advance. On today's show, I'm going to look at a different method of detection than has been proposed and investigated in some quarters, and that is specifically genetic testing for inherited cardiac conditions that could put people at risk for sudden cardiac death during exercise. Is there any benefit to this kind of testing, and could it be an answer to these rare but very devastating events? I'm going to take a look, and that's just in a short bit. Later, I am unbelievably humbled to be able to share with you my third conversation with a former Olympic athlete who has now taken up the sport of triathlon. You may have heard me speak with cross-country skier Chris Freeman and rower Juliet Hawkman. Well, today I am very excited to chat with Canadian women's curler Joanne Courtney. As a Canadian, I have long been a huge fan of curling, and when I learned that Joanne was hanging up her broom in exchange for a bike, I had to speak with her. I reached out to her representatives, and I couldn't be more excited that she took the time to discuss curling, triathlon, and all of the ups and downs that she's having in making the change over to our sport. I know that it is a conversation that will resonate with all of you, and that's coming up in just a little while. Before all of that, though, I do want to take a moment to remind you about the opportunities that exist for you if you become a Patreon supporter of this podcast. Now, usually this is when I say that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign up to support this podcast. The thing is, I've recently gone out and bought cups of coffee and inflation has gone a little bit amok. And it's true now that signing up to be a Patreon supporter actually will cost you significantly less than that cup of coffee per month. But you still get the incredible benefits for that amount of money. You get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out every month. Right now, that includes interviews with people like Joe Friel, Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others, all available on a private feed just for my supporters. And now, While supplies last, subscribers at the $10 a month level also get a really awesome Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access and get this very cool thank you gift. 
The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks so much just for considering. The incidence of sudden cardiac death in endurance sport remains uncertain and yet distressingly high. While accurate numbers are hard to come by for a variety of reasons, the impact that these cases have and the publicity they garner ensure that they resonate in the minds of the public and especially in those of their fellow triathletes. Just this past weekend, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, a man was pulled out of the water unconscious after likely sustaining some kind of cardiac event during the swim of the Boulder 70.3 race. Although he survived to make it to hospital, his condition at this time is unknown to me. The total rate of deaths in endurance sport is estimated to be somewhere in the range of 0.75 per 100,000 athletes per year, but this can vary across different sports. In one study of triathletes over a 10-year period, the rate was reported as high as 1.74 per 100,000, with most of those occurring during the swim. This number may not seem, like, incredibly high. It's less than 2 per 100,000 athletes per year. And the problem, though, is that it may underrepresent the true rate, since reporting is not mandatory, and as I said earlier, accurate data is just really hard to come by. In most studies that have looked at sudden cardiac death, the reality is is that about a th- in, in about a third of cases, many of those people can be found to have exhibited some signs and symptoms of ischemic cardiac disease prior to the event. And these are generally reported in older athletes. So these athletes will have experienced some kind of chest discomfort or palpitations or shortness of breath that was not really explained by the amount of exertion that they were putting out into their efforts. And they didn't investigate it. And then when they went to an event, they went into their race. And unfortunately, that those symptoms that they were having were warning signs of an impending cardiac problem that then manifested when they did their race. Now, in younger athletes, this uh, tends not to be the case because in young athletes, sudden cardiac death is often the first and only manifestation of underlying cardiac pathology, making it significantly more difficult to predict. Now, in triathlon, there's been a growing interest in the idea of swimming-induced pulmonary edema as a contributor for sudden cardiac death, but honestly, this is felt to more often than not be truly related to underlying cardiac causes and rarely develop on its own. So the actual importance of uh, swimming-induced pulmonary edema remains unclear, but probably not a big deal. Now, although they are rare... Given, as I said, how dramatic and impactful these cases are, there has long been an interest in trying to identify those who might be at risk for sudden cardiac death in advance of it occurring in order to be able to intervene and potentially save those people before they get into trouble. Unfortunately, time and again, whenever researchers have attempted to develop strategies that utilize the typical tools for evaluating the heart, such as electrocardiograms or echocardiography, they have failed to accurately identify those at risk in a reliable manner, and there are a variety of reasons for this. Now, first, it probably helps to understand what the different causes are of sudden cardiac death. I mentioned swimming-induced pulmonary edema. Well, that as I said, is very rarely an actual cause. 
And while autopsy results are not always available, even when they are, they don't always give us a definitive answer, especially in young people. And this leaves us with a great degree of uncertainty as to what actually happened. But the vast majority of sudden cardiac death, especially in older athletes, is attributable clearly to ischemic heart disease. So that is to say that a coronary artery is partially blocked, and then during exercise, something happens where that coronary artery becomes completely blocked, the individual sustains a heart attack and a dysrhythmia, and then they are unable to recover, and they are not seen because they're swimming, and unfortunately, they pass away. Now, the next most common cause is a cardiac dysrhythmia that doesn't come about because of a heart attack, though this tends to be speculative because in most cases, dysrhythmias are undetectable in autopsy. So patients who die because they have a dysrhythmia where their heart goes into some kind of fatal heartbeat, it's very hard to actually make that diagnosis after the patient has died because they don't leave any trace. There's no way to clearly know that that was the cause. Other common causes of sudden cardiac death include congenital heart problems, such as hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, pulmonary embolism, in which a clot travels to the lungs and can interfere with both pulmonary and cardiac function, as well as the previously mentioned but likely very rare swimming-induced pulmonary edema. Now, unfortunately, resting cardiogram and even echocardiograms, the test that I mentioned that cardiologists generally use to screen for heart conditions, are not very good for detecting most of these conditions, nor for identifying who might be at risk of developing them. In study after study, when the widespread application of these kinds of screening tests have been done, the yield has been incredibly low, and the conclusions have repeatedly been that instead of screening everyone, screening should really be reserved just for selected populations who are more likely to be at risk. Now, you may find yourself wondering, well, why not just screen everyone anyways? Even if the yield is very low, isn't a low-yield approach better than no-yield? Well, there's two problems with going about it that way, and the first relates, unfortunately, to cost. None of these tests are free, and somebody has to pay for them. The second thing is that testing hundreds of thousands of athletes would put a pretty large burden on the system and potentially displace patients who actually need these tests for diagnostic and treatment purposes because they're actually having issues where athletes would be getting tested purely for screening purposes and would have to likely be tested more than once in order for screening because screening can't be lifelong. It has to be done intermittently. So you can see that screening has definite problems and it's not a panacea because it's just not going to be feasible to do this on an ongoing basis for such a large number of people who would have to be screened. Now another issue relates to what you do with the results of these screening tests. When you begin with young healthy athletes then the likelihood that they have a true hidden problem that can be identified by these screening tests is really really low. And consequently, if an abnormal result is found on one of those tests, it's far more likely that this represents either a false positive or simply a variant of normal. Now, when you get that result, though, you don't know if it's a false positive or if it's a variant of normal. Instead, you're going to treat it as a true positive abnormal result. Well, is it fair to have these healthy athletes then have to live with the stress of knowing that they have some kind of, quote, abnormal screening result, end quote, that might not actually mean anything or worse, then have them undergo an additional battery of tests, all to find out 
that they were really fine in the first place. So you could see the cost of the tests, the fact that so many tests would need to be done, and the fact that the tests would often give us results that aren't really meaningful means that they're probably not the best way to go about this. Now, for younger athletes, those who are really unlikely to manifest any signs or symptoms of heart trouble before just suddenly experiencing an event, a subset of these kinds of individuals will be later found to have carried a gene for an inherited cardiac condition that made them more prone to suffering from their eventual fatal event. And this brings us to a whole new frontier of possible screening attests, the potential for the incorporation of genetic testing for these rare inherited cardiac conditions. Some of these conditions include things like long QT syndrome, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Brugada syndrome, and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And these are just a few of them that are conditions that we know are passed down from parents to children. And if they are expressed as cardiac anomalies, can place the individual at a very high risk of sudden cardiac death during intense exercise. Now, over the past decades, the individual genes responsible for these problems have been identified and tests have been developed in order to detect their presence. Now, researchers have begun to question if widespread genetic testing for these inherited cardiac conditions might then have a role in preventing sudden cardiac death, specifically in young athletes. Well, a recent review article in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology summarized what is known on these diseases, the tests that can help identify them, and how doctors, coaches, and athletes can think about them in helping to assess individual risk. Some of the issues raised by the authors are similar to the ones that we saw with more conventional screening tests like cardiograms and echocardiography. You see, it turns out that in many cases, the tests themselves turn out to be not that accurate. For example, for Brugada syndrome, a condition in which fatal dysrhythmias can occur during exercise, genetic testing can only yield positive results in some 10% of cases where the syndrome actually exists. For other inherited cardiac conditions, the yield is about 50%. So a negative test can't actually be taken as truly negative in many cases where the problem or where the genetic condition actually is there. Another important problem related to genetic testing has to do with the difference between genotype and phenotype. Genotype relates to the actual makeup of your genetic code. So your genotype is determined by what genes you inherited from your parents. Well, phenotype relates to which of those genes are actually expressed. In other words, you may carry a gene for a specific condition, but if you don't express that gene, then the implications of having the gene are essentially moot. Not all people who test positive for some of these inherited cardiac conditions will actually express the conditions that those genes code for. However, it isn't always so easy to know if the condition is present or not, only if the gene is there or not. So how then should such a test be interpreted? Should the athlete be counseled to not participate in sport because their test was positive, when in reality, they may not express that gene? These are just some of the complicated issues that the authors of the paper that I referenced from the European Journal of Cardiology raised when evaluating the utility of such genetic screening for athletes. And in the end, their conclusions were really tempered. Similar to the guidelines that have been developed for more conventional cardiac screening like cardiograms and echocardiography, 
then they really felt that genetic testing should be reserved for people who are more at risk. They felt that genetic testing was really indicated and should be targeted to patients who clearly have a highly suggestive family history or phenotype for one of these inherited cardiac conditions. Now, several other studies have been done in this area, and not surprisingly, all of the disparate authors who have looked at this question have arrived at pretty much the same conclusion. Over and over again, cardiologists have come down on the side of not performing routine or widespread population-based genetic screening for all of the reasons that I mentioned before. In some cases, cardiologists aren't even sure that targeted testing is really a great idea because of the uncertainty of what to do in the case of positive results. Now, while all of these cardiologists believe that such testing is a great development, they still caution that how to best use it remains pretty unclear. Most believe that before genetic testing is undertaken, that there should be extensive counseling of the athlete, their family, and their support team so that everyone understands exactly what the significance of any result is, and so decision-making can be thought out in advance of the test actually being conducted and the result obtained. They also advise that such genetic testing be conducted by highly specialized teams made up, by inter, made up of inter, multidisciplinary professionals, all very highly skilled in this area, and that athletes shouldn't be seeking out commercial genetic screening on their own because of the variable quality of testing done in those environments and the lack of multidisciplinary team support for when the results come back. So this isn't something that you can just send your blood in on the internet and get some results back. You really want this to be well thought out. So as you can see, this remains an area of significant uncertainty and that even as technology and our understanding of the causes of sudden cardiac death in sport improves, clearer answers as to how to prevent it unfortunately remain very elusive. What remains of the utmost importance for all athletes, but especially those over 35 or so, is that it is super, super important to pay attention to your body and be mindful of any signs or symptoms that might indicate some underlying cardiac disease. New or unexpected exercise intolerance, shortness of breath, palpitations, and definitely any chest pain should always be taken seriously and investigated immediately. That continues to be the single best way to prevent sudden cardiac death and allow for a lengthy career in endurance sport regardless of any screening programs. Do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Alternatively, please submit your uh, application, if you will, to join the private group for the TriDoc podcast on Facebook. There, you can submit your questions and join the conversation on podcasts that have already been released and ask questions about things that you may have heard or leave comments there. I hope to see you uh, join that group, and I'd love to interact with you guys. It is quite amazing to me that in the time that I have been doing this podcast, I have had the amazing good fortune to interview two Olympians. Cross-country skier Chris Freeman and rower Juliet Hawkman both have had amazing success in triathlon, and you got to hear them tell their story of their time in their respective sports and their transition to multi-sport. 
Well, on today's episode, I am lucky enough and frankly honored to have a third Olympian to speak with. And without meaning any disrespect to my previous two guests, I dare say I might just be the most tickled about this one. Joanne Courtney is a nurse and grew up playing a sport that I'm guessing many of you won't be super familiar with and definitely won't connect with triathlon. Though she tried her hand at other sports like soccer and gymnastics, she became obsessed with the winter sport of curling after watching it on television, much I will say like I did. The difference being I played hockey my whole life and only watched curling while Joanne took up at the sport and excelled. She had some success in the junior ranks representing the province of Alberta in the Nationals in 2007, but she had her big breakthrough when she was called up by Team Ontario skip Rachel Homan in 2014, and that launched her on her career to curling stardom. And I'm saying all of this as though any of you know what I'm talking about, but trust me, as a huge curling fan, this is all really big stuff. Some of her curling highlights include four silver medals at the Scotties, uh, which is the uh, tournament that uh, decides the national champion in Canada. She won the national championship there uh, in 2017. Uh, she won the mixed doubles Canadian championship in 2017 as well, went on to win the world championship for women in 2017, was the mixed doubles silver medalist in 2017, made the Olympics in 2018 for curling and has eight Grand Slam titles. But then more recently, she hung up the curling broom and made the transition to triathlon. And that's what we're going to be spending the majority of our time speaking about today. Joanne Courtney, thank you so much for taking some time to join me on the TriDoc podcast this morning. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be now, here. Now, before we get to triathlon, I have a special guest interviewer here. Um, my son, Adam, uh, has been introduced to the sport of curling by me because uh, when I uh, was in medical school, my roommate Howard and I were uh, long time curling fans, but we made a point of always watching the Scotties and the Briar every year. Since moving to the United States, we don't quite get the same exposure to curling on television. Well, we don't even have television, but YouTube exists and YouTube uh, fortunately has a lot of curling on. And so I have introduced my son Adam to curling. And so he was quite excited to hear that you were going to be on the podcast today. And so before we get to triathlon, Adam has a couple of curling questions for Joanne. So Adam, welcome to the TriDoc podcast, your first podcast interview. So uh, why don't you take the mic and uh, go ahead and ask Joanne your questions. Thank you very much. I have two questions. One is what made you get into curling and how did you learn it? That's a great question, Adam. So I think what you'll hear a lot of curlers or top level curlers say is that it was their family. Um, so my dad kind of picked it up when he was in university. I'm one of four kids. So my parents played in a mixed league to kind of get out of the house. Um, and my brother had picked it up. He's older than me by a couple of years. So I was at the stage in my life when I was seven that I like to do whatever he did. Um, so it was a good one day a week activity. Uh, if I'm being honest, I was in it for the sour cream and onion chips afterwards. Because we always get a nice hot chocolate and a bag of chips when you were done, you know, picture of athletic and grace. Um, but yeah, I was young. I was seven. I had fun out there. I liked just sliding around the ice and, and lobbing the rock down to the other end of the sheet. And um, when I was 11, it was one of the parents got us girls together. There were four of us that were around the same age that we all had like a little bit of talent. And he said, let's start going and playing in some bond spiels, which is what curlers call tournaments. 
And that's when the fun really started because you get to hang out with your friends, you get to go on the road and stay in hotels and rip down water slides between your games. And I just loved the um, the small team aspect and having fun on the road and then also getting to, to play the sport that I was kind of interested in. Did you have a role model? I did. Yeah. So when I was in that kind of preteen phase is when I got obsessed with watching curling on TV. And I was really lucky because my dad was also obsessed. So it was to the point where like, I got to stay home from school sometimes to watch curling live. And it was a really big treat to be like, Oh, what do you got today? And I was like, Oh, it's just art. And then gym really, it was like science and math, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so I got, I became really obsessed with a team based out of my hometown and it was team Randy Furby. And they had two guys playing front end, which is the position on curling where you throw two rocks and then you sweep all the rest. So not the glamour position, like you're working really hard out there, but these two guys were nicknamed Huff and Puff because they worked so hard on the ice and they were my heroes for my entire junior career. Wow. That's really interesting. I thought for sure you were going to say Sandra Schmerler. I just, I don't know. I just thought, but yeah, you're from Edmonton. So of course. Yeah. Well, and Sandra was around for sure, but I just, it was watching the briar. And and again, like I got to see this team like sitting on the bleachers at the curling rink when they were playing in their zone playdowns the same year that they won their first briar. So I felt like I knew them. I felt like they were my guys. Ah, that's awesome. (laughs) All right. Adam's got one more question. Okay. How did you become a second on your team? Um, So that's a great question, Adam. When I was in juniors, I, as I mentioned, those sweepers were my heroes. I kind of grew to like sweeping a lot and I felt like I could be pretty good at it. I did a lot of gymnastics as a kid. I wasn't very good at it, but I got really strong doing it because they made you do 50 pushups every time you went before you went home. Um, So I really liked sweeping and I thought this is going to be my position and I think I could be one of the best at it. And so I got, you know, put in lots of work there. And then with curling, it's not so much coaches that make the teams. There's no managers. There's the coaches help, but they're not the ones that are recruiting. It's actually, you make your own teams. So it's not kind of what, you know, sometimes it's who, you know, and people would see the effort I put in sweeping and thought, wow, that's, that's different from what most people can do. Um, And that's kind of, I found my little spot. I said, I want to play front end. I want to be a leader a second. And in the years when I came out of juniors, you had to kind of find a team and you make some calls and say, hey, do you need this position filled? And that's kind of how it took off from there. I dabbled in a few other positions, but that was kind of where I felt best. And so whenever I was kind of in the mix and trying to get on a team, that's kind of how I pitched myself. That's really interesting. Yeah, different from hockey, different from a lot of sports. No problem, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for being here, buddy. Uh, all right, we're going to switch over to, to triathlon now, but I do want to just tell my uh, listeners, curling is a sport played by teams of four, and uh, the team positions are lead, second, third, and skip. The skip is uh, kind of the last person to throw rocks and often thought of as the leader of the team who comes up with strategy. And the first and second are, as Joanne mentioned, the sweepers uh, for many of the really important rocks. And Joanne, just a last curling question, just for people who are listening and may not be so familiar with the sport, why is sweeping so important what does sweeping do so what sweeping does in curling is it gives the thrower a much wider margin to throw to so sweeping does two things um by heating up the ice so you create a lot of friction by pushing down hard on the broom and moving it really fast and that heat on the ice does two things it can drag the rock farther and it also keeps the line on it straighter so the thrower can be less perfect and still make the shot so if i can drag a rock let's say six or eight feet and we need it specifically in this spot at the other end of the sheet 
that gives a lot more room for error to the thrower. Shooting percentages go up and you win more games. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where I made made my career in curling as being that workhorse and um, always loved the training aspect and, and trying to set myself apart from my competition in the gym. Um, but like you said, Jeffrey, I was at a point in my career where I was just kind of burnt out on it and wasn't getting too excited about that grind anymore. And, and I was looking to make a switch. So what, what first got you interested in multi-sport? Honestly, I kind of, um, fell into it accidentally. Um, I was looking at the off season and knowing myself and how the last 10 years have looked in my off season where I trained six days a week and lots of, you know, high intensity stuff. I knew that I would want to do something and work towards something. Cause I don't stay motivated if it's just like, Hey, let's go to the gym three times a week and have fun with that. So I kind of thought I want to do a race of some sort. I thought up briefly about trying for a marathon because I've done some half marathons in the past. Uh, but my sister had just finished one and like the training, it's just so much running. So I was chatting with a friend about it and she kind of planted the seed on triathlon and I, you know, slept on it and thought about it some more and then thought, okay, maybe I'll join a Facebook group. And she said, okay, I can do you one better because there's a YouTube star named triathlon Taryn, who was actually a former curler who I met like 15 years ago when he still was a curler. Um, but obviously is super invested in triathlon and loves the sport. So I had a call with him and he said, no, I think you can do this. Despite the fact that I couldn't swim a length, uh, didn't own a bike but kind of knew how to run. He said, no, this is something you could definitely take up. And if you put the time in and, and do it right, I think that you have a lot of potential here. So here we are. That's outstanding. Yeah. I, uh, I feel you. I started the sport on pretty much the same kind of whim where I uh, was looking for a way to get in shape and did not know how to swim and had to take it up. So how has that journey gone from not being able to swim a length to now being able to complete your first triathlon, which you just did at the PTO Canadian open, you did the sprint distance. Uh, how did that go? Like, tell us about your swim journey. Yeah, the swim journey has been the uh, like the biggest journey, I would say, this whole thing, because as you mentioned, like I couldn't it, it didn't it was not pretty even as like a teenager or preteen when you have to get your deep watermark. Like that was always a real struggle. Like I, I, I would get it, but I would be redlined and just it was not pretty. Um, so learning the technique and how to do it properly, like it's going to be an ongoing thing. Um but that's been incredibly humbling because I, I got to a point in my own sport where I played at the highest level and you get to this point where people start asking you, what does it take and how do I get better? And, and, you know, talk to people about trusting the process and appreciating that things don't happen overnight and it's going to be hard and you have to be patient with yourself. And I've been dishing out that storyline for the last five years now, like since the Olympics in 2018. But to actually have to live that, <laughs> to show up at the pool and be embarrassed and to go and feel like I'm not getting any better. And I've had these calls with my coach and say, this isn't working with me. I need new drills. And he said, oh, you know, it's been two weeks and yeah, you can't swim yet. I know it's hard. Um, so that's been really interesting to kind of go through that journey um, of truly being bad at something at this point in my life. Because I think as adults, we don't we don't do that a lot. We don't pick up something that we say, Hey, if I could be mediocre at this, that would be a huge win. Um, so yeah, I, it was hard and I did not enjoy it. I still struggle with it, but I oftentimes was most happy when the swim was over. Um, cause it does feel good. Like you're refreshed at least getting out of the pool. Uh, but now like I'm at the point where it's the tiny wins that I really celebrate. Like I, swam for 500 meters the week of my race. And that was the longest I've ever swam for. It still is the longest I've ever swam for. And I, I felt exhilarated. Like I, 
I wouldn't leave curling practices in the last few years of my career being like, yeah, I did it. Like, this is awesome. But I left the pool <laughs> being a mediocre swimmer and being so pumped. And I had the best day afterwards because I was just so proud of myself. So it's been, it's been a nice combination journey of, of trying to learn this thing. And, and now I'm, I'm eyeing up that U.S. Open in Dallas in September. And that's a two kilometer swim. So that's another big, I got six weeks and it's going to be interesting. So what you're saying is going to resonate so much with my listeners and with me. I mean, we've all been there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, there, listen, there are people who come to triathlon from swimming backgrounds and we hate them because oh, I, you know what? They, I hate them too. I've been in yeah. this sport for three months and oh. right. Yeah. It's just, and it's a, it's a love hate thing, right? It's like you, you love them because it's like, God, I wish I could do that. And then it's like, you hate them because they're out of the water so much faster. And, uh, I will tell you, I've been in the sport now for two decades and it is a long haul. I I'm now at the point where I can get out of the water and have a chance to win, but it, you know, for the longest time it, it, it's just like, it's so frustrating to be a really strong biker and runner and realize that you've lost the race by the time you get out of the swim. <laughs> so it, but, but you in your first go, I should point out, did you win your age group or came in second? I came in second. You came in second in your age group in your first sprint triathlon. So uh, kudos to you. That is uh, spectacular and not at all surprising given you're an Olympian. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to say was uh, I have really enjoyed your Instagram feed because you're so self-effacing. And so um, uh, it's a joy to watch you go through what I think I know I went through and I'm sure so many others. And so I'm, I'll link to Joanne's Instagram in the show notes. I highly recommend people follow her because she is uh, uh, very, very entertaining and, and watching her struggles of trying to, you know, practicing getting on and off her tri bike uh, in a field uh, is the same things that all of us have gone through. She is going through now and uh, watching her journey to the PTO uh, US Open, as she mentioned, in in the fall is great. So 500 meters is the longest you swim. You got to swim 2000 for the fall. How's, uh, how's that progressing? Um, not well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like my coach says, if you can swim for 500 meters, you can swim for two kilometers. And to me, like I've crunched the numbers and it's just not adding up. So, um, yeah, you know, I think swimming is, uh, swimming is part fitness, swimming is part mental, and then swimming is unfortunately just hugely technique. And, uh, it's so aggravating because in your mind, we all look like, you know, uh, Penny Oleskowitz, right? And then you, if anybody ever shows you video of you swimming, it's like, oh my God, it's a dog's breakfast, my stroke. And it's like, <laughs> and, and that's the problem. It's like, we just do not have good body position awareness in the water. Uh, and it's very difficult to kind of put it together. But I will say, stay with it, keep going, because uh, I, I'm just like you. The first summer I did an Olympic, I spent probably six to eight months learning how to swim. And I remember the first time I swam 1500 meters in the pool, I got out of the pool. I called my wife. I was so excited. I swam the distance. So you will get there. It, 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 you know, you've still got two months. I only have six weeks. So, I mean, and like you said, there is that mental struggle. And, and it's funny because I, I've gained a lot of mental resilience in my life, you know, of sport and high pressure stuff and, and having that self-belief. But um, it's actually quite astonishing to me how fast it switches off when I'm swimming. Like even in that 500 meter swim, you know, for that sprint, like the first two, like half, you're swimming straight out to the buoy. And it went amazing because I let everyone kind of go in front of me. I stayed out wide. I was by myself. It was awesome. And I was 
was like, I'm doing this. Like I might even, you know, beat my own time that I did in the pool earlier that week. But as soon as we turned in the buoy, it got a little congested and all of a sudden people started running into me. And then I didn't quite know where my sight lines were. And like, instantly I was just, this is horrible. Oh my God. All the group, the heat behind me is going to pass me. Like, ah, can I breaststroke my way out of this? And, and it's just funny because I would never go there on the bike or on the run. Right. But instantly I was just so mad. And then I spent probably five minutes, you know, swimming a little bit, then getting run into and, you know, discombobulated and looking up and starting again. And then so mad. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, there's the shore. Okay. Let's just swim there get out of there and, and then we'll be fine. But it's just funny listening to this mental talk in my head because, you know, I'm, I've been a high level athlete and I've gotten through a lot of hard stuff, but it's amazing where I go with swimming. So there's opportunity for growth there, which is exciting. And at the end of the day in Dallas, if it takes me an hour and a half to get out of the water, like I'm not really there to win an age group. I'm there to, to do something for myself. And I think if I can cross that finish line, it would be an amazing accomplishment, no matter what the time is. So Yeah. Hoping for a wetsuit swim is the other thing. <laughs> yeah, it's hot right now. And I, well, we'll I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, do you, when you're having those mental struggles and you're having that, you know, all those negative thoughts, which are so common for all of us, do you, do you kind of call back on some of the times that you had in maybe pressure situations from your curling career? Do you, do you sort of like, do, uh, maybe it's reflexive, uh, maybe it's conscious, uh, but do, do any of the things that you've done in your past life, past sporting life inform how you handle those difficult situations? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been through, you, you go through the ringer when you play sport at a high level, right? Like it's going to be a different beast at different times as you get more comfortable in the pressure versus when you're new. Um, so for me, particularly in the swim, I'm just having to draw on the stuff that happened to me when I was like 22, 23, when you first started kind of making it and really feeling like you shouldn't be there. Cause that's ultimately what happens in the water to me is I, three, four months ago, I could barely swim. Now I've made a bunch of progress, but I very quickly go back to, I can't swim because <laughs> I, I spent my whole life kind of believing that. So same thing in curling is I always thought I was pretty good. I always thought I tried really hard, but did I ever feel like I really belonged at the top or I was some kind of child prodigy or anything like that? Absolutely not. Like I've always had my MO being that I'm a workhorse. I will put in the work. I will, I will work harder than all of my competition. And then I'll look up and I'll see where I end up. And that was great to a certain point, but all of a sudden when you get to that top stage you get on tv you're in something that matters um, and it gets a little hard if that part of your brain truly doesn't think you should be there shouldn't be in the water shouldn't be doing this then, then that's kind of what rears its ugly head so I'm having to draw on that a little bit actually a lot um, and it's just funny because I I didn't expect to end up here right like it's my first off season does it matter if I have to get pulled out of the water or if I don't finish a race like ultimately in the grand scheme of things, no, but yeah, like it really matters to me. And this is age group triathlon. Again, does it matter if I finish in a certain amount of time? No, but of course it really does. So that's kind of the part that's really addictive this, with this whole triathlon thing, like race week for the sprint distance of an age group triathlon, but like people are here for the pros for the PTO stuff. Like it's going to be, it was so exciting watching those guys, but me race week, I'm like, starting on the Monday, like I had that adrenaline, the same jitters, the, like the hair on my arm standing up. Like I was so pumped for something that is really just for me and me against me, which is something that I just, I didn't quite expect 
to find here, but it's something that just makes me so excited. I love hearing all of this because it's really exciting that an Olympian, somebody who uh, you know operated at such a high level of a different sport just so recently, is finding the same exuberance and excitement in this sport that we all do. And uh, that's really great. Uh, tell me about the bike and the run. I mean, those are obviously also fairly new to you. Uh, how have you... Um, I, I have enjoyed watching you uh, learn to ride a tri bike. Uh, you know, t- tell me about the struggles and uh, the accomplishments there. Well, it's funny because, like I mentioned, being such a beginner at the swim, but I was talking through the race with my coach, like before, you know, the day before we we're going to go, like, what's the plan? And I'm laughing because triathlon has such a wide range of ways you can invest in it. Like, I'm so low level in the swim. It's like the gun goes off. I count to three. I get to the side. Like, I just want to survive the swim. But then I get into transition. He's like, well, you're going to put socks on. I'm like, well, there's no time for socks, Taryn. Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Here I am, like, well in the back of the pack and planning to be there for the swim. But as soon as that's done, like, then all of a sudden that high level aspect kind of comes into play. Right. So I was really hell bent on having fast transitions. Cause I think that that is so badass in triathlon and the week of the triathlon, my coach had asked like, well, did you figure out how to get your shoes on when they're already clipped onto the bike? And I said, well, it can't be that hard. Turns out it is actually pretty hard. So that was, there's some footage online of bloopers. I'm in a field trying to put my shoes on. Cause I know I'm probably going to fall off and they keep getting caught on the ground and it's a total disaster. But, um, I did figure it out and I was so proud that I was like, I was barefoot, got on my bike, got my feet in before the big hill of the first race there. Um, but yeah, the bike's been okay. Like I, I didn't bike a lot as a kid. I fell off my bike when I was like seven and lost a permanent tooth and ended up having to have all this reconstructive surgery. So I didn't do a ton of biking. I like, I know how, but I didn't do a lot of it. So then when I got that tri bike, like I couldn't believe how twitchy it was. Um, and even just the clipping in clipping out, like that's still not automatic. So, um, I have a lot of fitness from curling and 10 years of weightlifting and I've got strong legs and did some spin and stuff, but it's just funny. Like I can be going so good. I was in that race and I was, I was faster than I was expecting, but then you come up on these turns and like, I, Oh God, that came out of nowhere. Like there was one turn where you have to kind of turn around in the race. And I literally was like screaming. I was like, Oh my God. And people are watching. <laughs> like, who is this person? <laughs> but I didn't fall off. And again, my bike was better than I expected it to be, but it was only a 20 K bike. This next race is 80 K and you really can't fake your way through that. So, um, it's all. Just I, I love. I love that you do everything a hundred percent, including well, turn, including U turns. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's just funny. Like endurance sport in general is something I don't know a lot about. Like I mentioned, I ran a few half marathons, but I didn't really train for them. I just kind of ran a couple long distances and then was like, okay, I'm ready to run this half marathon. So um, I've been using an app and kind of following what the workouts are and trying to get ready for it that way. But there's a lot of faith you kind of have to put in the science, especially for these longer distances that I'm just having a hard time wrapping my, my brain around. Like, you're telling me this race is going to take me five, six hours. And am I ever going to do this in training? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Well, welcome. Welcome to the world, right? Of yeah. triathlon. Yeah. Well, like I, I, I said, am, like just explaining triathlon to everyone that understands it already. They're like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> Your description of your finish line uh, run was uh, hilarious. I really enjoyed that. 
<laughs> uh, coming across the finish uh, of a sprint, uh, how did, what did you write? You you compared yourself to what what run was it? The the uh, oh, it's the Phoebe run from the France. Phoebe run, the Phoebe yes. run, right? That's from because France. El- I'm looking at the footage. I'm like, what are my elbows doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm everybody. My, I'm, I'm trying to elbow the racers out of the way. Like it's everybody's got the ugly. Everybody's got the ugly run picture and the ugly run face, and you just put it all onto video. It was perfect. Oh, exactly. No, I was lucky that my coach caught all that. But it's funny because that was like I didn't know how to pace the run because I've never done it before um, but I got off the bike and I my legs weren't toast which was nice I had no idea how that would feel um, and then but the first half it was only a four and a half k run but until the turnaround point I was like okay I'm just gonna hold back because I don't want to die and then once I had the turnaround point I was like well let's see you know if I can push this a bit and I kept thinking oh, I feel good I feel good and then I just was like oh my god who is breathing so loud <laughs> It was me. <laughs> no one was around me. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I was chasing down these two guys for like the last kilometer and they didn't know I was there. And, and then all of a sudden they started like picking it up. So it's like, okay, I guess we're doing this. And then all of a sudden they were sprinting. So I, I joined in on the fun. And uh, yeah. <laughs> people were like, I don't know what you were doing there. That was kind that's of great. They aren't in your they aren't in your age category. They're both men. Yeah. Um, but like that's that's how we finish. It's a race. Them. It's a race. Um, <laughs> now, one thing, of course, in a sprint that you don't have to deal with is nutrition. So nutrition is going to be the other thing you'll have to kind of sort out, I guess, in the next six weeks. And uh, I imagine that that's something you're dialing in. Uh, but that's a that's like the fourth discipline, right? And that's that's something that a lot of people struggle with, and especially in the heat, uh, that that will likely be the case in Dallas. So uh, more things to learn, more things to figure out. Uh, what does the future hold for Joanne but beyond uh, this? Uh, uh, what, is it a hundred K? Is that what they're calling it? The hundred K in the PTO Open? Uh, yeah. Are you thinking about looking at a, a full distance Ironman? Uh, do you think uh, do you think you'll continue with uh, the sport? Beyond on this year? I think I'd be really interested in it. Absolutely. Um, the part about the Ironman that scares me is just the amount of training involved. Like I'm a, I'm a nurse. I have a three-year-old son. Um, summertime's always nice time to travel. So I just, I don't like doing things half. Um, and again, you can't fake your way through these long distances. So I don't foresee an Ironman in my future, at least not imminently, like maybe when things are a little bit older in life. Um, but this, this hundred K kind of training plan, like that's been my training plan the whole time. Um, so the sprint was kind of an opportunity to learn how to race, but, um, I wanted to pick a big goal, like a borderline unrealistic goal at the start of this thing. Cause that gets you out of bed in the morning. Right. Um, so I've been on the kind of the half Ironman training plan since the beginning of May. And it's, for me, it's the right amount of like, you got to want to do this and you're going to train six to seven days a week. And there's going to be one day with, you know, the long bike and the brick run, that's going to be about a half day, but otherwise it's been pretty manageable, at least with the app that I've been using. So, um, I love to move. I love to be outside. I am pretty overweight lifting regularly because I've been doing it for 10 years with curling. So all of the boxes are kind of ticked off for me with triathlon. And I like too, that it's cyclical. Like there is kind of an off season where you can lay off and maybe get in the gym and build some strength. And, and I I like how it kind of changes. It's not always going to be the same thing, but it goes through that progression. And of course, like races are the best. And I forgot how awesome races are until a few weeks ago. Right. So I, I can see myself continuing with it for sure. That's awesome. That's great. I've really, I, I really enjoy the enthusiasm you're bringing to this, and how much you've enjoyed the journey, and how much you're continuing to enjoy the journey. It's really great for 
I think it's refreshing when, when, um, you speak to someone who was a high level athlete and something else and is brought down to earth by this sport and is enjoying just going through the whole experience. Like you are, it's really, uh, it's really great to see. And I, I totally echo all the things you've said about the, you know, the demands of training for the longer distances and, you know, having young children. I, I spoke recently on my own show about my own experiences and how I made the mistake of trying to do longer distances with all the training involved with young kids. And it's, it's just not tenable. No, um, and especially, I mean, the reason I stepped back from curling, I just was finding that it was too much being on the road and, and all that grind. So then to, to then say, Oh, never mind. We can't do any holidays this summer because I'm training for this age group thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's kind of where I, I had to make sure that I'm hitting the right balance with time at home. Yeah. I like also uh, that your sprint went better than my first sprint. My first sprint, I spent the entire race thinking about how I could quit and save face. <laughs> how could I sell all of these things because I hated so much of it? And then when I finished, I kind of reflected on all of the things I had done wrong and realized that I'd done a lot wrong and then became immediately addicted by wanting to get to another finish line. So I'm glad yeah. your first sprint went better than mine. <laughs> well, and I was, like I said, I was heavily coached. I was very lucky to met up with, uh, with Taryn and um, he answered all my questions. He literally held my hand through the whole process um, and, you know, read some books and I had a very clear picture of what I wanted it to look like. Um, but I know that they won't all be like that because as soon as you cross the finish line, you immediately think, well, could I have gone faster? Yeah, exactly. I did blow up on the run. So like, yeah, what did I leave out there? Night. Right. Right? That's what and brings you back. That's what yeah, brings you back. Like, and and the thing is that uh, the community is so welcoming too. There's always there's so many people who to answer questions and to to bounce ideas off of. And and yeah, it does become uh, you know you'll start showing up in transition and looking at the other women there and being like, oh, are you in my age group? And oh yeah, so yeah, that that comes soon. But but you know that's after you finish your first uh, longer distance race and get through that swim and everything else. Yeah. Uh, are you still curling for fun or is that really now you've done, you're done with that? Um, we're going to have to see. Um, I never said retired, but just cause I'm, I'm 33, which is actually on the younger side to be stepping away in curling. Um, like feasibly I could do at least one more cycle, maybe even two Olympic cycles. Um, but at this point I knowing who I am, like I mentioned the work ethic, how much I have to put in to be happy with performance. I don't see myself being able to step on the ice recreationally, <laughs> play poorly and enjoy that. Yeah. Um, so it's probably going to be a true year off for me. And we'll see if there's some opportunities on, you know, different parts of the sport for me. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of get to progress my nursing career a little bit and, and enjoy the off season at home. And you've taken up broadcasting, correct? Yeah, I did the Olympic broadcasting with CBC um, when when the Olympics were on in, in February. So that was an amazing experience and I would love for something to come up there. Um, I think our sport is wonderful and I love having the opportunity to explain it to people and, and to appreciate all the aspects of it, not just like the strategy and if the shot was made or not, but like there's so much going on on the ice and having dedicated so much of my life to that. It's, it's always a joy to be able to kind of step up to the mic that way. So we'll see if there's some opportunities there. Yeah. Well, I think it's great. Uh, we share a background in healthcare. We share a background in being from Canada and love of curling. And now uh, I'm enjoying following your journey through uh, getting into multi-sport and where it's going to take you. Joanne, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining me on the podcast today. It's really been a, a very entertaining conversation. I wish you nothing but success uh, in your race in a few weeks, and uh, I will be eagerly following along on that journey. Thanks so much. And that's it for another episode. 
The Tri Talk Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.